and welcome to part two of Tarot and Jung, which has been quite a while in the making. For those of you who are relatively recent um, discoverers of the Jung and Tarot um, mini series that I've done, that's great because you've got one parts one and two together, but there's actually been two years between between parts one and two. And and I was thinking about why that might have been and realized that actually, I think it's because it comes down to something really quite simple. And that is that this is a very personal um, point of view that I have about Tarot and Jung. There is no great amount of literature out there. Jung, as far as I can tell, from the little bit of research that I've done, and I did go and study Jung at university for a year, but but obviously Tarot didn't really make an appearance. I don't think he really wrote that much about Tarot, if anything, officially. I think there may be one or two references. So a lot of what is being spoken about is really inference. It's it's what we think Jung might have thought about what was going on based on how he felt about alchemy, how he felt about astrology. He was very much interested in alchemy and astrology played a far greater part in his work than than Tarot ever did. And I think that part of what I've been up against is something that that I feel that I've been up against a lot of the time, and it's possibly even just with myself, In um, when it comes to Tarot, is that it very often comes across as the poor cousin to something like astrology. The reason being that well, I mean, I, I've written an article about this, um, but the fact that it is so very much intuitively based in terms of a lot of the approaches, there are some approaches that really are not so intuitive and are very much grounded in a particular tradition or a partic- particular discipline. But my approach, for example, is is relatively intuitive or actually wholly intuitive, really, if I if I'm honest about it. And so therefore, it's very difficult to have it um, taken as seriously as, for example, astrology, which has particular systems, it has, you know, graphs and charts and symbols, it looks more measurable, I've often spoken about it as being the sort of yang part of, of divination as opposed to the yin, which is, which is a lot of the way that tarot is done. And I think that Jung himself was, was um, he had written about astrology, he certainly drawn his own charts, but with tarot, it, it, I don't think it was so much on his radar. And so when I was coming up with doing a sort of tarot and Jung series, part of me felt like, well, well, what right do I have to really speak about this? Because there is, there is really no authority in this, and I certainly don't want to be an authority on it. That, that's not it. I'm looking at my notes for this podcast, which I've written up, and right at the top of the notes is uh, a little heading that says, my opinion, exclamation mark underlined. And I think that that's, uh, that really sums up that this is very much to do with my own experience of Jung, my own way that I interact with Jung, my experience of tarot and how I interact with that and how I feel that they have a compatibility. And I think that there is absolutely a compatibility, um, but but I would never claim for it to have any kind of um, official stamp of approval from anyone. It's just something that appeals to me. And it appeals to me for two reasons. The first one is that a lot of Jungian thought and, and 
many of the things that I covered in part one of this series apply quite strongly to a lot of tarot theory. But the second point that I wanted to make is that both Jungian therapy and Jungian thought and tarot ask for a real leap of faith in terms of working with one's own intuition. It is an art form and not a science. I know that Jung, towards the, towards the beginning of his career, really wanted to try and create measurable results when it came to the art form of, of talk therapy, of the talking cure. And in fact, Freud was very interested in Jung's work because Jung worked with people who were really... Um, profoundly struck by mental disorders. Um, He worked primarily with schizophrenics and because Freud didn't have that kind of clinical experience or he didn't have that access to clinical patients, he asked for Jung's research in that and Jung wanted to try and find a method of being able to work that could scientifically measure and understand the nature of, for example, schizophrenia or the nature of um, hysteria, as it would have been called back then. And actually, I think possibly, as Jung got older, perhaps the drive towards that scientific, or the scientifism behind that, was, was really not so much of a drive. Maybe it was more towards a unified theory in some way, a way of trying to marry the two, but rather not to explain an art in terms of science. And really, my, my appreciation for Jung has come about because I generally come from a very intuitive standpoint. I have an analytical mind in, in one way, but I also have a very strong intuitive part of the way that I work with things. And so therefore, the way that I'm wired predisposes me towards Jungian thought. Really, what I'm saying is that this is from an intuitive reader it is an intuitive interpretation of how I feel that uh, the intuitive art of tarot and the intuitive art of of Jungian psychology in certain ways um, can go hand in hand and work really well together when you see them from the perspective of the tarot. I've often referred to tarot as being a tool of individuation and I think that I need to add a couple of caveats with that because I do believe that's true. On the one hand, it it can be a tool of individuation. However, I think that um, individuation can work without tarot, obviously, and that tarot isn't simply limited to that. However, at the point where tarot and Jung intersect, I think that they it can very powerfully work both as a tool for individuation or as a way of of working or reflecting on one's own psychology and psyche. But also, as with Jung, there was an element of mysticism that is also inherent in tarot. And so there is that idea, I think, of the mystery of tarot as a tool for divination as well, which is something that um, Jung was also very interested in. And so to reduce tarot in the context of Jung to being something that is simply about a a psychological tool, a bit like a a Rorschach test, and my thinking may have changed 
from the um, first from the first podcast compared to now. But to simply reduce it to that, I think, is to do a disservice to the possibilities inherent in tarot and also in Jungian thought and Jungian psychology and the application of it, but also to limit how it is that I also work with tarot as a reader. And when I first started out with tarot, I was very much along the lines of divination. And then when I discovered that actually there was a really good, rich place where psychology and tarot interacted, I kind of went the other way and thought, oh, well, then maybe tarot's just really about psychology. Maybe it's just about the idea of reflection, about a way of improving oneself, about a way of working with one's shadow. But actually, um, I think that the truth is more complex than that now, and that there is this place where there is the idea of being able to map Jung's idea of consciousness, of the soul, of all of the various archetypes, complexes, you can put that onto tarot. And as it is with the human psyche, there is this element of mystery that seems to reside under that, that I think that many people would refer to as magic. So when I start talking about tarot and Jung, what I don't want to do is remove the magic from it, nor do I want to try and explain the magic away, which is basically the same thing. So I would like you to hold in mind, if you, if you can or if you want to, when you listen to this, that there is an element of mystery behind all of this that really defies any kind of logical explanation and seems to defy any explanation at all. And I would suggest that if somebody's managed to explain it, then then they, you know, they aren't really approaching it as a mystery. They are approaching it simply as um, a part of them, an extension of them or their own understanding of the world. But, um, and, and that's fine. But, well, as you can tell from the tone of my voice, it's possibly not that fine for me, um, that, that I think that it's sometimes a very good idea to bow in humility to things that we don't necessarily understand, nor, and I'll speak personally for me, nor something that I feel that I, I need to understand or should understand, um, but rather to take things as far as I can and then hand them over to the mystery when I can't take them any further and say, well, you know, this is as far as I can go with this. But I do feel and I know in, in my heart of hearts that there is something more to this than I can explain. And that is, for me, tarot. And I don't think that that is incompatible with um, Jungian thought at all. So having put that rather lengthy caveat there up front then I think it's time to launch into where it is that I feel that tarot really does intersect with Jung in a meaningful way. And really, I can only speak about the technicalities of this. The art of it lies in intuition itself, and that's not something that can be, it, I don't think that can be replicated, which is why it tends to defy any kind of scientific measurement, because it just simply can't be replicated there's very little to do to explain what intuition is and then to ask somebody to immediately sort of latch onto that and assume and be able to work with it. 
intuition comes from the inside, but the actual practicalities of how it is that my mind works with tarot when it comes to Jung, that I can talk about, which is what I'm going to be talking about now. I think that the tarot deck, given the tarot deck is basically the universe in 78 cards, or rather, you know, our known universe, our universe, the way that and when I talk about the universe, it's not just about our everyday world, but also the invisible world, the inner world, the unconscious world, um, and where we connect with everything and everyone else, then um, the the idea that the tarot deck is, is a universe in 78 cards really reflects that idea of wholeness that Jung talks about when he talks about individuation and also about the idea of the self as being the personal aspect of wholeness and the collective unconscious as well. Depth psychology deals with going not only back into the past, but also going back into the, um, the past that is not linked to our personal past, but also the collective past. And the tarot really re- is a reflection or in potential of everything that, that, that those two things are. It's the, it, well, it's the personal consciousness plus the personal unconsciousness, the personal past, but also the collective. So really, tarot in itself is the idea of depth. If you see the 78 cards on top of each other, that in a way is almost a visual depiction of depth in terms of depth psychology. Everything that's in that deck is in each of us. Everything that's in that deck is in life. And so each of us is also a reflection of life and life is a reflection of each of us. The tarot for those of you, and I'm going to speak as if as if you are absolute beginners, and I know some of you, or maybe most of you, aren't. But, but for those of you who are, the tarot is divided into two major sections. There are 22 cards in the first section, which is the major arcana, and then there are 56 cards in the second second section, which are the minor arcana. The major arcana go from the fool which is card zero, to the world, which is card 21. The minor arcana, as far as I'm concerned, move from the wands to the cups, to the swords, to the pentacles, and there'll be different names for each of those suits, but those are the probably the more conventional names. And then within each suit, there are the aces, and then there are the cards two through ten, And then there are the court cards, and there are four court cards in each suit. And those are, and again, in the more conventional naming, they are the page, the knight, the queen, and the king. Immediately, you can see that the tarot deck is very structured. So, so much for the people who scoff at the fact that it's purely intuitive hooey. There is structure within structure within structure. The major arcana in itself is is structured in terms of the its progression through, and the minor arcana is structured in terms of the three areas of each suit, and then of course there are four suits as well. And through that structure, there is a discipline that's built up in how you read, but also there is a discipline that reflects life itself. By understanding that, we can look at the cards that are dealt and 
are lying in front of us, you know, whether we're doing a big reading or a small reading or we've drawn a single card or whether we're looking at the whole deck and know that whatever card it is that we're seeing at any particular time is turning up for a reason. And that gets me onto something that we need to talk about before we even start to talk about the card meanings. And that is the idea of synchronicity. Synchronicity, according to Jung, was what is known as an a-causal connecting principle. That immediately removes all of the life and the meaning out of something that is incredibly charged and incredibly meaningful. Synchronicity is that moment where something happens in your outer world that is that has an inner meaning for you that is um, indescribable. It is deeply meaningful, but it's one of those things that very often if you try and explain to somebody why it's meaningful, they don't understand it. And in fact, very often when you explain a synchronicity, it's like explaining a dream to somebody who is a, who doesn't believe in dreams. It all just kind of disintegrates in front of you. I very rarely tell my dreams to people anymore, and I very rarely talk about synchronicities unless they are what I would call the sort of bonkers synchronicities, the ones that are impossible to ignore. Really, it is about working with that that idea of synchronicity and understanding that that's going to be meaningful to you but it's not going to be meaningful to anyone else and that whole idea of the the sort of misperception or the or the difference in perception of what synchronicity is and its value versus what it isn't and its lack of value is really what makes tarot either something that you believe in or something that you don't something that you um, put your energy behind or something that you scorn. Very often tarot will be scorned as being irrelevant or just coincidence or something like that. And those are the same kinds of statements that are leveled at synchronicities as well. And the same kind of statements that are leveled at dreams. And synchronicities and dreams are definitely the realm of Jung. So, you know, as, as somebody who who really has been a follower, not a follower of Jung, but an, an enthusiast of, of much of what he's written and disagreed with quite a lot that he's written too, but, but um, generally has balanced out in favour of, of, of what he's written. Um, I totally understand that judgment that can be levelled at things that aren't scientific, aren't provable, which is why I think he probably set out to try and prove when he first started out professionally that he wanted to try and find a method that was scientifically cohesive so that all of these things would be taken seriously. Synchronicity, going back to that idea of the Jungian phrase, is something that can absolutely be applied to tarot because it is the synchronicity that happens between what is going on inside you and then the card that appears in front of you and the meaningful connection that you have with that card that somebody else, for example, looking over your shoulder would have absolutely no charge about. They would, it would be nothing to them. And yet for you, it could mean, it could mean so much. And so synchronicity is really something that we need to talk about when it comes to tarot and Jung, because it's that principle that I think that applies very much from Jungian thought into the world of tarot. When we work with tarot, therefore, or when I work with tarot, 
I am working with the understanding that synchronicity is key to my experience with the cards. Synchronicity is going to be there when I read for myself and synchronicity is going to be there when I read for my clients. I am then the intermediary with synchronicity for um, my clients and the cards. Whereas if I'm reading for myself, then synchronicity is very much um, a direct experience on my part. That lies at the foundation of any interpretation of Tarot and Jung. Given the fact that then the cards that we draw are going to be personally meaningful to us, that we get the right card at the right time, that there is no coincidence between the card drawn and what's going on in our lives, then we can go to how it is that the deck is working along Jungian thought as well. I think I'm going to go to the minors first, because while the minors, there's a lot more to talk about, the majors are are kind of, I think it's what we need to work up to, because the minors are more of the detail and the foundation for the majors to work from. The minors deal with everyday archetypal situations. And when I say archetypal, I'm not talking about the kind of archetypes that work with the majors, but and when I say archetypal, it's easily recognizable blueprint situations. For every minor card, particularly numbers, um, well, it is, especially the numbers uh, two through 10 in all four suits, you are working with archetypal situations. And one of the best decks to see this, I, as far as I'm concerned, is the Waitsmith deck, because the way that they're illustrated is really so effective in bringing out those very different um, situations that are immediately familiar to us when we see them. If we look at the Five of Cups, for example, we can feel that experience because we know it. When we look at the Three of Swords, we can feel that. In the same way, when we look at the Three of Cups, we can feel that. When we look at the Ten of Cups, we can feel that. They are archetypal situations that we've all been in, in one form or another, at, at some point in our lives. And they are basically the grounding, they are the practical grounding of the tarot deck. When the miners come up, we are looking at things that are going on in our everyday lives. That doesn't mean that they are less important, less significant. It is simply that you are going to experience them in your everyday life. But it doesn't matter what suit you're working with, nor does it matter what number within the suits, whether it is two through 10 and also the aces as well. They are all the building blocks of how we experience life and the building blocks of how it is that we move through life. And therefore, it's how we are individuating at any particular point in time, how it is that our particular experience is constellating in our world, how our inner world is appearing in the outer world. This isn't strictly Jungian, but I am going to go into a tiny bit of background about the miners, just so that if you don't know about tarot, it gives you a better idea. There are four suits and they go from wands to cups to swords to pentacles, as I was saying. But from a particular interpretative standpoint, that goes from the least dense material, which is fire, the wands, which is um, libido, which is energy, to the most dense, which is pentacles, which is earth. And then within those, you have the aces, which are the pure archetypal um, representations of their suit. So none of the aces actually exist 
on this plane. They um, they encompass everything about their particular suit. They they cannot be quantified. They are just what they are. And then as soon as we hit twos, so we go from ace to two, we go into the incarnate world, and then there is the complexity that is built up two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And all of those cards in those numbered cards are going to depict various situations that sum up that particular suit and that particular number. And all of those will be archetypal situations. And then when we finish the tens, we go into the court cards. The court cards are not an 11, 12, 13, 14. That's not the court cards. The court cards are different. The court cards are what Jung would have called the personality types. So there are 16 court cards, 16 personality types, and they're very one-sided in particular ways because we have all 16 of them, unlike the Myers-Briggs ones where they kind of stick us in a particular category. We all have all of the four court cards and the four suits active all of the time. Some of them are going to be behind the scenes. Some of them are going to step forward, but they all represent different aspects of our psyche whether it is the um, page, which is very young, or whether it's the king, which is the yang adult element, whether it is the cups, which is to do with hearts, water, feelings, emotions, or whether it's pentacles, to do with matter, to do with money, material belongings. We all have all of those court cards going on um, all of the time. It's just that some of them are way back in, in our in our awareness. And for some of us, we may not relate to some of the court cards at all, whereas sometimes we may identify quite a lot with a particular court card. And of course, if you apply Jungian thought to that kind of thing, it, it, it throws a different light on it, because while some of us may favour as tarot readers, for example, being the Queen of Wands, what um, Jungian thought might say is, well, why are you favoring that particular personality type over another one? Because obviously, if you are going to favor that particular, that particular expression, then the other ones that are lying in the shadow are going to continue to be in the shadow, but they are in some way going to make themselves known, but unconsciously. And actually, the whole point of becoming a whole person is that yes, you will tend towards certain things because that's how you're wired. But to say, oh, I'm not that or I'm not that is, is, um, is essentially putting something into the shadow. And that actually um, the call is to express more evenly oneself across all four suits and across all four court cards. So that if you are a queen of wands type, you may need to try and get used to the fact that you're also a page of pentacles. You know, if you are a king of swords type, you may have to deal with the fact that you're also a knight of cups. You know, the king of swords being this very dour, very straight down the line, very analytical person, and then the knight of cups who throws all rationality out the window to go out on the hunt for, for love. And whereas the Queen of Wands, who is very much a tarot archetype in terms of a reader of being somebody who works entirely with her intuition, may need to contend with the fact that there is, on the other side of things, somebody who is young at heart and who is, who is much more interested in things that are material. 
A lot of tarot readers, for example, say, well, I would never read for money. I just wouldn't do that. I think it's a gift given to me from, you know, a from God or from the divine or from spirit. Whereas the, um, you know, from if you're working with a pentacles point of view, it is about the it's about working in the material world, working with money, working with matter. So where it is that we favor something, the court cards will always show up the other side of us that that is um, or the other sides of us that maybe aren't being favored. And whereas we may, as readers who are not acquainted with Jung, like to identify fully with a particular court card, for those of us who work with Jung, we know that if we identify fully, the others are just put in the shadow there and they are somehow going to be upending our best intentions in one way or another when we are trying to reach for something we want and we find out that actually we're being thwarted and then when we look further we're being thwarted actually by aspects of ourselves because we have stopped them from being expressed. The minor arcana are really quite interesting and the court cards particularly because that that's really where it pertains to Jung is the idea of the personality types and the fact that when we look at a court card, we are essentially looking in the mirror and there may be immediate recognition or there may be quite some time before we are even able to acknowledge what's being reflected back to us. Essentially, court cards from a Jungian perspective are something seeking expression or where balance is required. And really there is that need or that drive to return to equilibrium, to try and find that middle path through so that there is a sense of being able to say, I am that, but I am also that. Because when we are able to hold both things or many things that are in some ways paradoxical and if you know my works you will have heard me saying this many many times if we are able to hold those paradoxes and the discomfort of not being able to solve them there is a certain magic and there's that word again magic that happens that um, defies anything that we can properly explain that seems to find a resolution that we would not have been able to come up with consciously. And then if we move to the major arcana, and I understand this is really a very quick skip through tarot, but as I said, I am not going to claim that I am an expert on this, but this is um, more of an overview so that you can perhaps then go and do your own research. Um, The major arcana, really, this is where it comes into its own in terms of um, Jungian thought, because the whole idea of Jung's way of working was to encourage people, particularly adults. He didn't, he didn't tend to work with young people. He was much more focused on people who were, going in, who were moving through midlife to work with what it was that they were being called to become or towards a greater sense of wholeness towards being able to embrace those aspects of themselves that they were not able to embrace when they were younger, to be more true to themselves. When I say true to themselves, it sounds a bit glib, and it really, it's it's been touted left, right, and center in New Age talks and in literature. You know, you need to be more true to yourself, you need to speak your truth, Actually, being true to yourself can be a really difficult path to take. And the major arcana 
are um, reflective of this. If you look at them, they are not an easy path to take. Being true to yourself is being a whole person. And a whole person is not necessarily a popular person. My own feelings about it is that you will probably be more popular to fewer people, but you will not really mind as much because you are simply being true to yourself. I think somebody who is widely popular is not necessarily, um, they're either not being true to themselves or not really particularly known. There is just a projection being put onto them. But to go through the major arcana and to understand that as the journey towards wholeness, the journey of individuation is to understand that you're going to go through different phases. You might be popular one minute and unpopular the next and then popular again. And ne- and none of that is important. It's the fact that you are moving closer and closer towards who it is that you really are. And who it is that you really are might surprise you. It will certainly surprise others at times. It might even surprise you. So the major arcana are really quite reflective of Jungian thought in that respect because it shows a particular evolution through the becoming of something, through going from nothing, and I mean, you know, the the zero of the, the fool, all the way through and back into the zero of the fool again. And if you go through the major arcana, they start off from the zero, which is the field of potential, I like to think of that as the field of potential, it's the potential of everything, and then something rises up in that, and then that becomes the first major, which is the magician. And for the first few major arcana cards, they are more personal cards. So you go from the magician to the high priestess, to the empress, to the emperor, to the hierophant, to the lovers. So you go through this evolution of personal development. You have come from nothing, you learn how to work with matter, you learn how to bridge the gap between spirit and matter. You understand the natural world rhythms, you understand the man-made world rhythms, you understand the um, laws of something higher than you, and you understand the coming together of the two different aspects, the, the masculine and feminine, the yang and the yin. And then it starts to change as soon as you go through that sort of personal development, which is very much akin to the the ego development of somebody when they're younger. You go out into the world, you discover who you are, you discover what you're capable of. You know, you may face um, a little bit of resistance or maybe a lot of resistance, but you are outward focused. You want peer recognition. You want recognition from your employers. You want monetary recognition. It is all about being out there. And then something shifts and you start to be inwardly focused. And that then comes around with the idea of the fact that you discover that there are two sides of yourself. And that is the strength card. And that maybe then it's time to do some introspection. And then that's the hermit card. And when you've shifted inwards to do that first form of integration, then that's the first sort of reckoning that you have with yourself. And then things start to change even more. So you come out of the hermit, life changes, you've got the wheel of fortune. So there is an external shift based on um, or as a result of an internal reckoning. And then you have justice, which is more about karma. So now you come up against the laws of the universe, 
which is something that is outside of yourself. And then we hit midlife. And then that midlife is that idea of the hanged man and then death and then temperance. You, there is the idea of the sacrifice that needs to happen, the dying to oneself, the rebirth, the idea of, of temperance being the fact that you cannot solve anything completely that really matters, that there are things that are contradictory ultimately and there is no trying to square that circle that the whole definition of midlife is to understand that things are shades of grey rather than black and white. Back earlier in the major arcana were the black and white, and now you're hitting those shades of grey. And so when you, when you understand that, then you're more able to contend with the darker sides of yourself because you're dealing with shades of grey. You can see the nuances in the shadows as well, and that is then when you deal with the devil. And the devil comes along at 15 because we are then able, sufficiently have ego strength enough to look at our shadow. So this is very much Jungian thought. And then when we are able to do that, life has to change profoundly when we look at our shadow. Because when we start to integrate that, there are certain things that will never, ever be the same again. And so we go through the tower and once we have gone through that tower, which is the dissolution of things that do not work, which can be an incredibly disruptive and painful process, but not necessarily, then there is increased flow. But what happens after the tower from an archetypal perspective, from a Jungian perspective, is that we have suddenly hit the collective. We have suddenly started to realize that we are not just individuals in an individual world relating to other individuals, but we are connected. We are connected into something and nothing that I am going to say is going to make any iota of difference to the real meaning of this because we have to experience it for ourselves. That connectedness that comes with the star that then comes with all of those, you know, the moon, the sun, and judgment, which is transpersonal. You can nod knowingly at somebody who's, who's going through that with you, who's been through that, but it, it defies words. But when you have done that, you are tapped into something bigger than you, and that is about surrender, which is why when we look at the moon, for example, from the perspective of further down in the, in the tarot deck, the moon can look really quite like a frightening card. And in fact, I was reading on one of the forums, you know, there's nothing positive about the moon. Well, I think that's rubbish. There are positive things, except at the point where you reach the moon, um, it's neither, it's not to do with positive or negative. It's simply to do with how you experience it and what it is that you're experiencing and what it means and to be able to surrender to that. So those last parts of the major arcana are really, you have, we have moved from that Jungian personal consciousness to personal unconsciousness to unconsciousness to the midlife crisis and then into the collective. And that's where tarot really comes into its own is the fact that tarot is a visual representation of something that is not easily reached or impossible to reach we can actually see when archetypes are active. It gives us a bit more information sometimes. And whether that's useful or not remains to be seen because something that we cannot get our heads around 
well, if we can have a visual depiction, maybe a part of us can slightly comprehend what it is that's going on, and that um, and that helps. But but really, the tarot is a reflection in some way, and we meet it where we are, and that's sometimes as good as it gets. If we're working from a Jungian perspective, then the tarot is incredibly useful in terms of our own individuation process. That's not to say that if we draw something, you know, like cards towards the end of the major arcana that we suddenly realize we've got it made, that's rubbish because we do multiple journeys through the majors um, and we double back and we do, you know, overall we'll, we'll have one large journey through it. But there are always these different re-experiencing and, and looping back and, and multiple journeys and parallel journeys. And so nothing is, is entirely straightforward. But it is a way of being able to meaningfully understand one's own world. And you couple that with synchronicity. And then there really is a powerful tool, as far as I'm concerned, to work with tarot as a way of not only explaining where one is in one's own life and and where one is in the world, but also as a divination tool as well, where we are interacting with the mystery. And then as far as all of the other things that I was talking about in the first podcast are concerned, the persona, the shadow, and complexes, all of those are present in any number of forms in a reading. And it will depend on the cards that are being drawn, and it will depend on the combination of cards, and what it is that you're reading about as well. Very often, court cards will represent personae, and minor arcanas will represent complexes, but then so will majors. It will, it will absolutely be down to the reader. This is the thing where I can speak to you about tarot and I can speak to you about Jung, but you might not necessarily be able to suddenly take it away and apply it meaningfully in your own practice because it takes practice and it also takes a particular way of reading. And what that takes is, is a lot of practice in terms of experiencing card combinations, and also your own unique perspective that you bring to the cards so that you can see if there are complexes going on, that you can see that there are personae going on. But from my own perspective, I found that applying Jungian thought and just having that as something that I can refer to has proven to be a very, very solid and useful resource that I can work with when I work with tarot cards. If you feel like you want to know more or you want to know more about my work, feel free to visit my website, which is integratedtarot.com. And I would love to hear from you. So if you want to send me an email, feel free to do that too. That's sarah at integratedtarot.com. But otherwise, I will leave it at that. There may be a part three. I'm not too sure. But let's get this part two out before another year goes by. Take care.